The Moments That Make Us podcast is produced on Gadigal land, as well as other parts of Australia. In the spirit of reconciliation, Women's Agenda acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and future, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Welcome to The Moments That Make Us, a brand new Women's Agenda podcast that explores those fork-in-the-road moments that change our lives. We'll be delving into the life-altering moments of some of Australia's most prominent women and hearing about the lessons they've learned along the way. I'm Shivani Gopal, the host of Moments That Make Us, a podcast series made possible thanks to the support of Stellar Insurance. Joining me on the podcast today is one of the most influential and respected figures in Australian media, Lisa Wilkinson. Lisa got her start at the age of 19, working for Dolly Magazine, a role that two years later would see her take the helm as editor. With her career spanning over the last four decades, Lisa has made her mark in publishing and radio, and of course, shifting to television as we all know her today. In fact, Lisa Wilkinson is now Australia's top-paid woman in media. Now, she has written an autobiography documenting her life in the public eye called It Wasn't Meant to Be Like This. In this episode, we talk about what it was like to lead at the age of 21 without a playbook, the moment she found herself challenging Kerry Packer and changing Clio magazine as we know it, her first ever pay rise and more. Lisa, welcome to the Moments That Make Us podcast. Thank you very much, Shivani. It's great to have you here. Now, Lisa, you've written a book, your autobiography titled It Wasn't Meant to Be Like This, that takes us through your journey. From growing up in Campbelltown and being bullied in high school to becoming the editor of Dolly Magazine at the age of just 21, co-hosting the Today Show and now The Project, there have been so many moments that have made you, and I'm conscious that I've left out so much in between, and I only wish that we had the time to cover them all. But I want to start, however, with the moment that you got the opportunity to become the editor of Dolly Magazine. I'm proud to say that I'm of the generation that would purchase that magazine religiously upon publication. And I've got to tell you that I got more out of that sealed section than I ever did from high school sex ed. Yet, Lisa, you were just 21 at an age where most people were planning their second gap year or maybe a trip around Europe or their first internship. You were the head of a magazine that really captured the attention of curious teenage girls at that time without a playbook of sorts. How did you navigate these uncharted waters that led to your success? Um, It's amazing when I look back that I was even given that responsibility at the age of 21. It's just like, what were they thinking? And if somebody had said to me um, when I was 19, when I went for a job after answering a three-line ad in the women and girls employment section of the Sydney Morning Herald, that in just a couple of years I'd actually be running the thing, I would have run in the other direction because the mere idea that I would have a job as big as that that quickly would have completely terrified me. But from the moment I walked into the Dolly office, I felt like I had come home. I had found my passion. There was nothing about working in magazines that I didn't love, that every single day I was learning something new 
I was fortunate that I was surrounded by people who believed in me at a time when I didn't yet perhaps believe in myself. It's basically the the whole approach that I've taken to living my life, which is I won't worry about the big things. I'll just concern myself with the small steps that I can take that will get me to the end of whatever this challenge is. So I'll do it all in bite-sized chunks. And so that was what I did when I started working there. I just, I found a whole lot of things that I just love doing. And because I too had been a Dolly reader, and in fact, when I went for that job, I had seven years worth of much loved back issues underneath my bed that, you know, I didn't dare throw out because to me, they represented my growth as a young woman. It had helped me navigate all the difficulties of being female, being a teenager, with all of its complexities. So I had a great love for the magazine. I was surrounded by people who were supporting me and who actually cared what I thought because a lot of the people who were working there were a lot older than me. So I was like instant market research. And I just very quickly got lifted up by the people who were there and just weird as it sounds the right people left at the right time two years later I became the editor and I was now running this magazine leading a team of people who just two years before I was hoping I was good enough to make a cup of coffee for so it was a case of having to take these people on the journey with me I knew what I wanted to do with the magazine but I made sure that they stayed really informed about where I was taking it. And one of the real advantages of going into this role so quickly is that nobody had actually got around to teaching me any of the rules. And so I wrote a few of my own and probably broke plenty, which was no bad thing because in the space of four years, we'd tripled the circulation. So you know, a bit of rule breaking never hurts, I discovered very early on in my career. That was actually one of my favourite parts of the book where you did talk about you writing your own playbook and breaking your own rules. Can you share for our listeners some of those rules that you did break and some of those decisions that you made on the kind of leader you were going to be and the kind of leader you just weren't? I think having been bullied in high school, It wasn't until I was leading a team of people that I realised what a privilege it is to be a boss. Like no one tells you that you get to go into work every day with people that you have chosen. You know, over time, as, you know, people leave, employ new people, no one had ever said to me, you're actually going to spend time with a whole lot of people you are inspired by, people that you have personally chosen. And I think early on, you know, when I was still... Um, in my early days at Dolly, I did come across people who were bad bosses, but they became my teachers as well. You know, I saw ways of doing things that I would never be a party to as a boss. So as well as wanting to lead a really inclusive group of people and work as a team, I also knew what I didn't want to be as a boss. And, you know, I... From the start, I loved working with people who inspired me and I think they all felt very included. And also at the time that I took over Dolly, it had been faltering a bit. The editor at the time was 55 and it's amazing how so not old that woman sounds to me these days, but she was out of touch with the readership and 
I just had this innate sense of how I wanted to treat young Australian women. And it was more intelligently than they were being treated. I wanted to have, you know, a nice balance between, you know, the latest dress from Q Clothing with proper informed sex education. Because I, what I knew early on is I saw a whole lot of research and commissioned research myself on, you know, when, when young women are informed about their own bodies, when they are informed about consent, and I know that that is still a big issue. In fact, in many ways, I think it's an even bigger issue now. When they have control over their own bodies, they have control over their own lives, and they can make informed decisions. And every piece of research that I saw was that when young women have that information, they actually delay their first sexual experience and it becomes a sexual experience that they have had some control over which is, you know, one thing I, I desperately wanted young women to have. So there was a whole range of issues that weren't being dealt with anywhere else in the press for young women. And so I felt very much that my job as editor of that publication, when you have, as Dolly did have back in the 80s, we were the only media that was informing young women. And I didn't want to squander the responsibility of that or the opportunity of that. It's such a pioneering approach, Lisa, because, of course, we know that consent is now taught um, in New South Wales schools and took a lot of campaigning for that to happen. Yet way back when you were talking about effectively what consent should look and sound like and informing women about their bodies at the time where we were scared to even say the word vagina, heaven forbid. Mm. Talk to us about the courage that it takes to really push against the trend and empower women with their bodies when you are working in a non-normative approach. I think when you just know what the right thing is to do, you don't stop and listen to the naysayers. Mm. You work from a, a place of this is just the right thing to do. And if there's going to be pushback, I'll deal with that. But I know what's more important here. And it's not whether, you know, I'm going to have to deal with judgment. So it was just a case of knowing exactly what the right thing was to do. You know, that point around pushing through regardless of judgment just gave me goosebumps. That is certainly a moment that I think will will make our listeners go, hmm, at the end of this podcast. So um, thank you for sharing that. Lisa, of course, you're known for so many of your successes. And of course, due to success, you expect, no doubt, to be paid your worth. And many of our listeners would know about the pay disparity between yourself and Carl Stefanovic during your time at the Today Show. Yet you've been fighting for your worth long, long before that. When taking Dolly Magazine to the States, you tried to negotiate yourself a pay rise and you ended up with a big fat, and wait for it, ladies, a big fat $1,000 pay rise. How did that experience set you up for knowing your worth today? And please tell us more about that experience. Um, well, that $1,000 was $20 a week after I hadn't had a pay rise basically since I became editor of Dolly. And in that space of time as a team, we had tripled the circulation. The magazine was just about to start up in the US. I was going to be spearheading that. And, you know, I knew I was making a lot of money for this company that this product was not making at the time when I took over. And so, yeah, I went and asked for a pay rise and it was, it was kind of laughable. At the time, I, it was it was so comical. It was laughable. 
because the boss had said to me when I got the courage to go and say, you know, and I had my list of these are all the reasons why I think I should be paid more. And he was kind of, he was an accountant who had ended up running Fairfax magazines. So, you know, he was used to watching the pennies. But I was watching the pennies stack up on on the plus side of the ledger for Dolly. And, yeah, he said, well, I actually got you this pay rise six months ago, but, you know, I just didn't get around to putting it through. And I remember just thinking, who does that? How bizarre. But, you know, it's it's also what we women tend to do. We scrounge around for pennies thinking, I don't know if I'm worth this and I've really got to fight for it. And it's not like I can go out and have a drink with the boss like a lot of blokes do. But it was a learning curve, as so much of my career has been. And I look back and I think that was a mark of the times. That was the mid-80s. But by pure fluke, as I talk about in the book, on that very day that I was knocked back, well, I'll say I was knocked back with the pay rise because it was nothing like the pay rise, you know, I can see now that I really deserved. Uh, I walked back into my office and discovered that there was a message sitting on my desk indicating that Kerry Packer wanted me to leave Fairfax magazines and go and join his very powerful media company and run Clio. And so began, you know, a strange kind of series of events that meant that even though I didn't want to work for Kerry Packer, I was too intrigued not to at least go and have lunch with him so that one day I could tell my grandkids that I had met the great media icon, Kerry Packer. And what I discovered is that people like that usually have a hell of a lot of charisma. And I went to lunch with him that involved the Channel 9 helicopter and me being flown down to Palm Beach But, yeah, I negotiated with Kerry Packer, which is one of the more terrifying moments of my life, and somehow I said yes to the job offer because I basically figured I didn't want to die wondering. And you didn't have to die wondering because not only did you meet Kerry Packer and hence get to tell your children and, of course, all of our listeners and and the nation this story and and get all the luxuries that come along with it, but you also went head-to-head with him and robustly had conversations and held your own. Tell us about that experience. Well, Kerry had said to me, you know, one of the reasons that I gave him that I didn't want to come and work for him, because I was very upfront with him, because as as one of my girlfriends said to me the morning that I was meant to be going and having this lunch with him, she called me. She was one of the only few people that I had told, apart from my parents, that I had this lunch. And I said to her, I've been throwing up all morning out of fear. And she said, why? You've already got a job. Let him try and impress you. Like his job today is to try and impress you. And you don't even want the job. So you are totally in the box seat. So I said to him, sitting on his veranda, overlooking Palm Beach, after I just got out of his helicopter, I really don't want to work for you because I've already got a job and I'm only here because I thought it'd be really interesting to meet you. And... (laughs) I said to him, the biggest reason I don't want to work for you is because I have been left completely to my own devices at Fairfax. That board of directors at Fairfax has no idea what it is that I've done at Dolly that's tripled the circulation. And I know for a fact you're just not a boss like that. You are going to want to be all over me. You're going to want to know every decision that I make because I understand that Cleo is 
you know, something that you started up with Ida Buttrose and you're not going to let me just do all the things that I want to do to it to fix it up because I could see a few things that I would do with it and that was one of my downfalls was actually telling him that. So he became even more interested and I'll clean up what he actually said to me but it was along the lines of, for Christ's sake, I'm about to pay you a shitload of money. The last thing I'm going to do is do your job for you. And so, so I accepted the job knowing that he had very little interest in what I was going to do. I'd already given a rough outline. But one of the things I decided when I took the job very early on was that I had to get rid of the centerfold. When it started in 1972, I thought it's a great gimmick. You know, you boys have got Playboy. We women can do the same thing. But Cleo always did it with a sense of humour. Playboy, it was just, you know, it was just porn for young boys. And so I wanted to get rid of that to make a statement that I was going to make Cleo grow up and bring it into the go-ahead 80s, which sounds hilarious now. So first thing I did was get rid of the centrefold. So there was a three-month lag between, you know, back in those days, the magazine went off to Hong Kong to be produced on a ship and then came back by a ship and then landed in news agents. So for three months, I was merrily going along my way. I dropped the centerfold. And on the very first day, the very first issue hit the stands, I was invited on as the lead guest of Ray Martin's midday show. And the big news was that I had dropped the iconic Cleo centerfold after 13 years of its existence. And that's what Cleo was known for. And who's this brave possibly stupid young woman who is taking away the one thing that Cleo is known and loved for. And so I appeared on the show. Ray was incredibly welcoming and I came off and as I was heading back to the green room, I heard a producer call out, is Lisa Wilkinson here? And Kerry was on the phone and that producer, as she handed me the phone, (laughs) let me know that Kerry had never called the green room before. So I knew that this was going to be a pretty big moment. He was furious and he had just been watching the show. Of course, he owned Cleo. He also owned Channel 9, therefore owned Ray Martin, owned the centrefold that I'd just chucked in the bin. And I figured I'm going to get one shot here because he's so angry that he wasn't in on this. I basically said to him, Kerry, for anyone who works in magazines, for anyone who understands what the 80s is all about, This sort of leftover, old-fashioned feminist statement that is the Cleo centrefold is a huge mistake to still be going. Any good joke has one punchline and you move on. So if anyone thinks that this is still a, a good idea, they shouldn't be working in magazines. And there was silence and he said to me, well, you better effing know what you're doing and then slam the phone down. And so I figured this is it. You know, if this magazine doesn't sell, I'm in real trouble. I'll be out on my ear because he he made that clear to me when we were initially negotiating as well. You know, I'm not going to do your job for you. And let me tell you, if this doesn't work, you'll be gone very quickly. In the end, there was just something about that combination of adrenaline of working for Kerry. I loved working for him because I just you know, you always felt like you were riding this galloping horse all the time because there was always so much going on at ACP. And the whole company, all of the executives made me feel incredibly welcome. I just wanted to test myself. 
And so I tried lots of new things with the magazine for the first six months, maybe nine months, the, the circulation faulted a bit. And there were days when I went home and I picked up the local paper and looked for jobs as a, as a receptionist because I thought, I know I'm a good receptionist because I was a really good receptionist when I was at Dolly. But it slowly started to work. Eventually, over the course of, I stayed at Clio for 10 years. And during that time, we took it to become the number one women's selling lifestyle magazine per capita in the world. So we found our groove and it was just I loved working for that 20-something, 30-something female audience, you know. It was the right move for me to go from that teenage audience to the older woman. That was a joy. And that was such a joy listening to that journey. Um, Let's talk about finding your groove on TV because, of course, you are known for all of your success and your ability to capture the hearts and minds of audience across the nation, particularly on TV. You've led the national debate on important topics like domestic violence, women's equality, and the need to support each other and not compete, really before it became mainstream conversation as it should be today. So people who watch you on TV might always think that, hey, well, it's easy for Lisa. She's a born natural. But in your book, you discuss that it wasn't always the case. Um, In fact, you tell us in your time of Beauty and the Beast, in fact, that was one of my favourite shows to watch whenever I was homesick from school, by the way, um, (laughs) that it, it just, no, TV just wasn't for you. And yet here you are. You well and truly have found your groove. What was your personal journey of growth like to get there? Well, I was never planning to be on TV. I loved working in magazines. If anybody had even suggested it to me as a career, I would have said, you're crazy. I mean, the lifespan of women on TV to that point was incredibly short. If you were in your 30s, it was very rare to see women in their 30s on TV or, you know, late 30s. 40 was kind of the cutoff point. And the only reason I ended up on TV was I was on maternity leave with our second child. And I'd, I'd said to Kerry, after 10 years at Clio, I feel like I've done everything I could possibly do here. I don't know that I can achieve anything more for the title. I'm now married. I'm about to have my second child. We've got to pass the baton on to the next generation of up-and-coming editors of Clio. And... I'm going to take 12 months off. I'm going to take time out to be a mum for the first time in my life. I'm not going to work crazy hours. I've saved really hard for a long time so I can afford to take this time off. And I don't want somebody to come into that role at Clio and feel like they've got the ghost of Lisa over their shoulder and trying to second guess me. They had to find their version of Clio. So I said, I'm going to leave Clio. I'm happy to come back and consult in 12 months' time. But I'm really happy to leave with a big question mark over me. I don't know where I'll be in 12 months' time. Let's just have a conversation in 12 months. But I'd only been on maternity leave for about six months and I got a call from a guy called Brian Walsh. Foxtel had just started up and he was starting up this incarnation of Beauty and the Beast that had been on and off TV for decades of Australian television. And the idea was four women sitting on a panel, one male reading out letters from viewers, and the tradition had always been that that male was a really out-of-touch, misogynistic, sexist pig, like that was kind of the cartoonish version of the, the male role. 
but it was to encourage conversation between the four women on the panel who individually got to look down the barrel of the camera and give advice or a response to whatever that letter might be. The letter could be on politics. It could be, I think, my husband's having an affair. It could be that there's a woman at work who's sabotaging my career. And we would, from all of our different lives and perspectives and sexualities and ages and religions, we would give our response to those letters. The thing I liked about it, apart from the fact that my mum used to watch it when I was in, before I was even going to school, I, it was in the mists of my early memories. The thing I liked about it was it was unscripted television for women and a lot of women that you wouldn't normally see on TV. And, you know, there were women like Ida Buttrose and, and Jeannie Little, older women, women for whom, you know, being on TV in a regular gig wasn't, wasn't necessarily happening, but women with all of this incredible wisdom that they could impart. So working with them was like a dream. Brian said to me, it's going to be on for six weeks, and I thought, oh, that'll be fun. I'm on maternity leave. I'll see what it's like to look down the barrel of a big black hole and pretend that there's somebody at the other end that I'm talking to. And, you know, I'll give it a shot. What's the worst that can happen? I can be terrible at it. Somehow that sort of mix of women and having a bit of fun with the guy who was the, the beast called Stan Zamanik, who was, you know, a right-wing shock jock but a complete pussycat off air and, I don't know, it was just, it was fun. And the show got extended. It started becoming really popular. Then Channel 10 bought it, so it was appearing on free-to-air TV as well as Foxtel. And I got noticed by uh, the guy who was the executive producer of Sunrise when Sunrise was really on a trajectory and changing breakfast television. And I became a commentator on there, a social commentator, and I had to say to Adam, what the hell is a social commentator? <laughs> I think he invented that phrase. And I just started getting used to being on TV. And all the while I still had a magazine consultancy business. I never went back to full-time editing. I was mixing up motherhood, part-time work, running my own business, and it was just this lovely mix and I was trying different things. Then one day I got a call asking me would I, I'd be interested in becoming host of the Today Show. I'd been hosting Weekend Sunrise for a couple of years, which we'd started up. There was just something about breakfast TV that I found addictive. It was a combination of the great privilege of being invited into people's homes Every morning when people are at their most raw, their most unfiltered, unshowered, you know, people are really themselves at that time of the day. If you are lucky enough to be invited into that space, that alone is an enormous privilege because you're also getting to present everything that's been happening in the world overnight. You know, you're the first one to deliver up a lot of what becomes that entire day's news cycle. But you also, you know, get to interview prime ministers and lead politicians and you get to have fun. We travelled all the time. There was just so much about it that I just thought I've got to give this a go. And I'm so glad, actually, that at the time that I first appeared on TV in any kind of regular way, I already had a whole career behind me. 
that had nothing to do with fame. It had nothing to do with having a camera on me. It had nothing to do with ever having an ambition to be on TV or to be famous. And I'm a kid from Campbelltown. Like this was starting to become a life that I was certainly never seeing in my future, but it was the work. And for me throughout my career as a journalist, what has kept me sane and what's kept me driven and what's given me the greatest joy is concentrating on the work and every day trying to do good work, but also every day being incredibly grateful for the opportunities that I've been afforded and making the most of those opportunities, but also being surrounded on really um, significant occasions by people who've believed in me and supported me and given me those opportunities. Again, at times when I didn't think could really do some of those jobs, it was a case of, I don't think I can do that job, but that person over there thinks I can do that job and I don't want to disappoint them. So I've just kind of run with it every time those opportunities have come along. Lisa, one of the many things that I enjoy about seeing you on TV is you championing the causes of women, not just in the many things that we've seen recently, of course, you supporting Brittany Higgins' cause and, and bringing that to life, but also you just championing women overall and saying, you know what, we don't need to compete with each other. We don't need to fight for that one seat at the table. We can all, as is famously known now, bring folding chairs to the table and create seats for each other. And you, you talk about this so often I want you to share how you've done that for other women in the media and brought them up and along with you I I think there is something about very early in your career finding yourself in a situation which I certainly did where I could never understand how it was that I was the one that got the opportunity to to become an editor at the age of 21 it made no sense to me whatsoever I was a kid from Campbelltown. I didn't go to private school. I left school with not a lot of confidence. But one thing I did do when I left school, when I walked through the gates of Campbelltown High School, is I made a promise to myself after really going through some tough times is that I was never again going to let somebody else define who I was or what I was capable of. And it's a promise that really did change my life. I had to start believing in myself because I just couldn't imagine what the alternative would mean. And working in an environment where people recognised a talent in me and being lifted up the way that I was and then becoming editor at that age, it was really difficult for me to reconcile why I got chosen because I couldn't understand, like any other girl who'd walked through that door when I did, could have done what I did. Because for me, it, just everything I was doing just felt like common sense. You know, I didn't feel like a talent. It just felt like, well, of course you'd do a story like this. And of course this is the photo you'd take. And, and of course they want education. And I know how to do that. And I know how to talk to them, not at them or down to them. So all of that came to me very naturally and it was a joy. And the only way I could be comfortable with having got all of those opportunities was making sure that other young women, just like me, 
that I came across over the course of my career got those same opportunities and that I helped that happen. It's the only way I could make sense of it. It was just like, oh, that's the reason why I was chosen because it's paying it forward. And, you know, there is just nothing quite like seeing that glint in someone's eye, encouraging it, teaching them some of the ropes, and then just standing back and watching somebody fly. As a journalist, as a boss, there is no greater joy. And, you know, you don't always see it. And I wonder, and I, I write about this in the book, I wonder how much of that, certainly for women of my generation, the fairy tales that we were brought up on, like the stepsisters were always ugly in Cinderella, for example, and you were in competition with them for the one guy that was available. And the only reason that guy would choose you was because you were the prettiest. And, you know, from the moment that marriage happened, that was the highlight of your life. That's what you aimed for. Because in those days, the plan was a man, because there wasn't equal pay, there wasn't proper childcare, Domestic violence happened but was never discussed. You know, there were so many areas of women's lives that were just swept under the carpet because as long as you had a man, you were going to be okay. But, you know, those plans fall apart and where are women left? So we have to lift each other up. We have to because who else is going to do it for us? Because we are... We know the common experience of being female. We know the challenges. So why would you want to get in someone's way? Why wouldn't you want to make it easier for them? If not us, then who? And it's so true. Our value is so much more than just how we look. We are minimised simply for that and therefore limited in our capacity because, of course, our looks or our youth is only fleeting. And when men aren't valued on their looks and they're valued on their wisdom, well, of course, that can last for as long as you do. Exactly. It's a bit like the biological clock. Like once a woman's biological clock is done, that's at 40. But, you know, Charlie Chaplin was still... (laughs) planting his seed in his 90s and having kids like if that ain't unfair I don't know what is so when when you've got biology against you and you know that's something we can't control but there are so many elements of being female that we can control and we've got to empower each other to make sure that we we make the narrative as good as we possibly can not just for ourselves but for all women and when women are in competition What do you reckon men's reaction is? Oh, look at them. They just, they can't decide on anything. We are so much stronger when we link arms. And certainly I saw that after I interviewed Brittany and we put that interview to air, that women around the country realised there was a common experience for so many women that wasn't being discussed. And you saw it in those rallies. Women were finding their voice. Women who many of whom had lived their entire lives keeping men's secrets. And they'd realised that wasn't getting them anywhere. And they realised that was enough. And and you're so right. When women compete against each other, we are only reinforcing the regressions of the patriarchy. We're not helping ourselves. We're actually strengthening the patriarchy and limiting the opportunities, not just for us, but for all of us. Lisa, you talk about 
narrative and you have done so much in your life thus far. Tell me what's next in your unwritten chapters of life. Look, I would love to say (laughs) that all of this was planned and all of this was, you know, exactly the course that I knew I was going to take when I walked out of the gates of Campbelltown High, but it wasn't. And that is part of the joy. I mean, the older I get, the older I want to get. And the more challenges I take on, the more I want to be challenged, the more that I want to learn. And the only way that all of this has happened is because I've been open to change. And that's when you can let the universe in. And it's only when I've thought, oh, well, this isn't working anymore. Let's go this way. And every single time I've, I've made a significant change over the course of my life, I've always walked into that moment thinking I could be terrible at this, but I'll never know if I don't give it a go. So I want to just keep giving life a go. I love that. Keep giving life a go. Lisa, this podcast is called Moments That Make Us. And every time I have the great pleasure of doing this podcast, I always do a little summary that is moments that made me go, hmm. And here are some moments that made me go, hmm, with insight in speaking with you. And the first one is you might not be ready for the role that you end up in. You become ready along the way. So take that step and you will get there before you know it. And to challenge Challenge your leader, no matter who they are, no matter how powerful they may be. They may even be Kerry Packer and do it free of judgment of them and yourselves. Have the courage of your convictions and have your work speak for itself. But at the same time, don't be afraid to ask for your worth. You should be worth so much more than $1,000. And if you don't, that door will close because another one will open for you. That and so much more. Lisa Wilkinson, thank you so much for joining us on the Moments That Make Us podcast. Absolute pleasure. Thanks so much.